1930, Hal, you made a film which remains, I believe, one of your favorites photographically, Outward Bound. Yes, George, I think that is, in my, my recollection, the picture that I feel that I made the greatest photog photographic achievement on was one that gained the least recognition, and that was Outward Bound. Outward Bound, unfortunately, I don't know why, never met with great popularity as a film, nor did I think its remake, its recent remake, become very popular either. But Outward Bound was one of the very first talking pictures that Warner Brothers made, one of the first few, let us say. And it had been a successful play in New York, had been staged by Robert Milton. And they brought Robert Milton to Hollywood to make a talking picture out of it. In the, in the early days of talking pictures, you'll recall the style was to bring directors and actors and everybody from the theater because they suddenly had a voice to contend with. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, they didn't have cameramen in the theater, so they might have brought them out also. But anyhow, uh, Bob Milton came out to make Outward Bound, and it, it was uh, written as a three-act play. Incidentally, uh, let me interject this while I'm, while I'm speaking about Outward Bound. Outward Bound, I think, introduced more personalities to the screen who subsequently became stars in magnitude or in uh, a lesser degree than any other motion picture that I, I ever heard of. Uh, Bob Milton, and I give Bob Milton the credit for having accomplished this because he did the casting on the thing. It was the first motion picture Leslie Howard was in in this country. It was the first picture Dudley Diggs was in. It was the first picture Allison Skipworth was in. It introduced a little girl by the name of Helen Chandler who met a great but brief success in film. Uh, it was the first important role that Douglas Fairbanks Jr. played in pictures. And I don't know how many others were in the thing who subsequently became very important to motion pictures, but that, that's aside from the story that I want to tell. Uh, Outward Bound had been written as a three-act play, and I believe that we conceived a, a uh, treatment for this thing that in my estimation, was a pretty outstanding achievement, and I, I'm, I'm really very proud of it. And I would like to see the picture again sometime. It's been years since I've seen it. But we treated the, uh, as you remember, the story of Outward Bound was one of a person who uh, a couple that have, we find out later, have attempted to commit suicide, and they're in the never-never land on the way to death. And it all happens in this modern luxury liner with a very limited cast, and the angel Gabriel the, is the uh, uh, becomes the bartender. The no, the the, the, the interrogator. What oh, is yes. the name? The part that Dudley Diggs played in the film. The Inquisitor. Wasn't Inquisitor. It? That was it. And uh, the thing, uh, if, as finally a realization comes on these people that they are on their way to death, but in the end, of course, they don't die. They recover from the fumes of the ghetto. At any rate, this boat, which is a very real thing, could not remain a reality, a tangible reality within itself as these people's minds would travel on towards the, the moment of death, which would be the end of the play. So we, uh, we uh, conceived a thought of, of treating the set and treating the properties in such a way that as the audience became aware of the transitory effect of the, of the play itself, that the set itself would become that way. So we, we uh, conceived the thought of spraying the set in color. The first act, which is an act of reality with human beings apparently fully alive but acting strangely, the set was a, was a finely detailed, uh, real boat set with real dressing and furniture and all that sort of thing, the bar and the bartender and the glasses and everything were all substantial and genuine. Uh, by the end of the first act, now a sense of unreality comes into the play, and we begin to find out that this is an unreal, unearthly sort of a thing. So at the end of the first act, we shot the picture in this more or less continuity. We then have the set sprayed into a neutral monotone of gray, a medium-toned, darkish medium-toned gray, which eliminated all detail. I mean, the set, it was, the set was still there physically, the outlines, the detail was still there physically, but it was inconspicuous. 
And the uh, the second act was played against that kind of a background, with a little mist introduced and a little fog introduced. Then we got into the third act, which was in the minds of the audience by now, really on on the the way across the river, that they were really reaching the point of death for these people. The set was painted into a deep, sprayed into a deep brown, uh, almost making the making the set invisible with all the properties and everything else sprayed into this tone so that the only reality on the set were the actors themselves. And then, of course, great volumes of fog and mist were introduced together with gauzes on the camera and that sort of thing. And I felt that in, a, in the final accomplishment it was really a, a photographic and an effective achievement. And I'm terribly regretful that the thing never gained the recognition that I thought it deserved. I'm happy that we have a print at Eastman House. I would love to see it. Now, Hal, if I jump to 1934 to ask you to talk about David Harum, uh, from this point on, I'm trying to highlight in your career, you were making virtually a continuous string of highlights. It's some, and somewhat difficult to select among them, but let's uh, jump to David Harum. All right, well, David Harum was a very exper happy experience in my mind because that's the picture that was the turning point in my life. I, I mean, that's the picture that I met my wife on, uh, Evelyn Venable, who had been uh, under contract as a star with uh, Paramount, was borrowed by Fox to play opposite Will Rogers and David Harum. And David Harum was to be directed by Jimmy Cruz, who, to me, was, up to that point, just something that I had heard about. I didn't know Jimmy at all, but I knew him only by reputation as being a man who was very difficult for a cameraman, because in the middle of the lighting of a scene, he was known to say, roll him, and if the cameraman didn't get off the set, he'd be photographed in the scene. As Jimmy was a believer in making great speed and great headway, and nothing would stand in the way of that keeping up with the schedule. So I, I didn't want to do the picture. I tried to get out of it. I begged off and told them that I didn't want to, and they said, well, at least go ahead and talk to the man. I was in the contract of Fox at the time, so it was a case of I couldn't quit or I couldn't be fired. But uh, they wanted me to talk to Jimmy, and I went to talk to Jimmy, and I immediately liked the guy, and he immediately liked me, although our meeting was one of a bit of profanity against each other, but nevertheless it <laughs> turned out very well. And on that picture it turned out, I had already photographed uh, uh, Will Rogers in State Fair, and uh, knew him quite well, and Will was to work in the picture. But uh, the leading lady was this Evelyn Venable, and I had never seen her, I'd never met her, didn't know anything about her, I'd never seen her on the screen as a matter of fact. But at any rate, making the making of David Harum turned out to be personally a very memorable and a very happy event for me because Jimmy and I grew to be probably the firmest of friends, almost a Damon and Pythias type of friendship, as I loved Jimmy very much, and I know he was very fond of me up to the time of his death, the poor guy. And I married Evelyn, and we've been very happy and have two wonderful daughters who are one who's already graduated from university and the other one is about to. And uh, dear old Will Rogers, who claimed to have been the matchmaker, whether he was or not, I don't know. I think it just happened, but Will sort of bragged about having been the person that brought us together. In fact, he autographed a photograph to us to that effect. In 1935, Hal, you were called in as a troubleshooter at Warner's on the making of Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes, well, not actually a troubleshooter. I, you know, I guess it was a troubleshooter, but I, I think that's a circumstance that should be explained, George. And uh, taking over the making of uh, Shakespeare's Midsummer's Night's Dream, making it into film. It was a tremendous project for any studio to tackle, and, and with all due respect to Mr. Reinhardt, who was a great producer of spectacles, and had unquestionably, uh, I mean, far be it from me to criticize the man's interpretation of, of what a Shakespearean play was to be, or, or, or a thing of that sort. He, he had done some wonderful things, and was highly recognized, and, and certainly meant a hell of a lot more than I do to to the artistic and theatrical industries. 
But nevertheless, I, I do believe that under Mr. Reinhardt's guidance and under the guidance of Mr. Deatley, and particularly under the guidance of the art director, who shall remain nameless at this time, because I question his capacities, they had built this lavish set, this forest set, that, that covered two full stages of the Warner Brothers' first national studios. And it had been built to such a degree of reality, they were so encased with the thought of having it look so much like the out-of-doors that nobody had ever questioned but what the thing had been made out-of-doors, that in my opinion they lost all sight of the fantasy and all sight of the, of the dreamlike quality that the thing should have had. And the cameraman that had prepared the picture and was about to photograph it and started to photograph it, uh, I think was, was so tightly encased in the opinions of these others that he had no voice of protest to raise or that he could raise successfully to have the set changed to the way it should have been done in the first place. So they had worked for a few days on the, on the picture when they suddenly found that what they had built as a matter of reality was transmitting itself as reality to the point that it was possible to photograph it but being such a tremendous set and such dark values of browns and deep greens, it was almost impossible to get enough light on the set to even make it look like what it was. And if it did look like what it was, it wasn't what it should have been for a Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm -hmm. So the, the cameraman, as is usually the case in, in many of these things that involve other people's judgments who have been wrong, the cameraman, in this case, was made the goat. And he was criticized as not being able to photograph the set where in reality, as I tried to make clear before, I don't think they know what they wanted in the form of photography when they started mm -hmm. the thing. So I was asked to come out and take the picture over, and I was reluctant to do so because I hate to replace any man on a picture, and I tried to convince him that I should be permitted to help him straighten himself out and maybe do something about the set, but that wouldn't do. They didn't want him on the picture, so they prevailed on me, and I, I, I told them that I would take the picture, and this is not being said on the point of self-aggrandizement or anything of that nature, but I thought I knew what the picture needed mm -hmm. and what the set needed, and I knew that I couldn't put it in words and explain it to people who wouldn't know what I was talking about, and the only way that I, I had them uh, at a disadvantage because they insisted that I do the picture, and I insisted on doing it only under my conditions, only under my own terms. And those terms were, I did tell them that I wanted to redo the entire set without changing the physical characteristics of it, but I wanted to change it so it could be photographed. And also, one of the other particulars, which I think is an interesting sidelight, I had with me at that time an assistant cameraman who'd worked with me for several years, and had been a very valuable man, a very valuable assistant. And I could never seem to make an operator out of him. And the studios would allow me to make an operator out of this boy. So I told him that I would, uh, that this boy who had been my assistant would also have to be my operator on this picture. And they finally agreed to that. That boy was Bob Surtees, who is now one of our most distinguished cinematographers, has won many Academy Awards, and is the, one of the top men in the industry. But anyhow, the, uh, the point being that uh, they finally agreed to give me a completely free hand to do as I saw fit to do insofar as photography was concerned. So this was on a Friday, or a Saturday, it was Saturday that I took the picture over. And Saturday night I had them, had a gang of painters, there must have been 150 of them, brought in on the set, on the stage, I stayed there and worked with them all that night. Uh, with, uh, I had gallons upon gallons of aluminum paint prepared and gallons upon gallons of high-gloss shellac prepared. And where the set had been, a, uh, to the eye, a beauty of nature, it suddenly became a very bad Christmas card, to this extent that on the... That is the eye, it looked that way, it didn't photograph that way. But uh, I had the painters go on what they had established as being the hard side of light, where the source of light would come from on the set, and spray everything, every tree, every blade of grass, every prop, every rock, spray from that side with a solid coating of aluminum paint. Trees, foliage, everything. And then after that was put on, so that one side of the set had the dark area, and the other side was all aluminum, they then sprayed the entire setting, dark area and everything, with this high-gloss shellac. So the set was just a shining, glass-like sheet of aluminum and darkness. 
Then over this, I had, we had the special effects people come in with all the cobweb-making machines we could get together in Los Angeles, which is maybe a half a dozen of them. That's, that's a fan, an electric fan that, that blows out a uh, gum-like substance in a fine web and makes like a cobweb over whatever it goes on. And then we then proceeded to cover the whole set with this cobweb, just a sheet of, of cobwebs over the entire set, over every tree and every bush and every rock was covered with cobwebs. And then on top of that, I don't know what other name you would call them, but I know them as casket flitters. It's a glass-like, mica-like, uh, fragmentary substance that, that they uh, coat on the outside, put on the outside of caskets the kind of caskets they bury people in. And I had this stuff, hundreds of pounds of this stuff, which would be blown onto this cobwebby material while it was still soft before it became set. Well, the result was that the entire set became a fairy-like, uh, oh, just a, an, an impossible a thing that you would never have seen in nature or would never see on the stage, I don't suppose, but it was what my concept of the forest and the Midsummer's Night Dream should look like during the fantasy periods. And then, of course, it was photographed, uh, it was photographed through uh, special spun cobwebs with this glistening casket uh, flitters suspended from that with lights playing on them to give a star-like effect and special discs reused to disperse the light into star-like patterns with the result that it was a pretty fantastic fantasy, but it was, I think the, the uh, reviewers were almost unanimous in their opinion that the most outstanding feature of the film was the photography, the treatment of the photography. Of course, the studio was pretty panicky when they saw what I was doing to their set till they began to see the rushes, and then they were quite <laughs> happy about it. But naturally. In uh, 1935, you were back with uh, Michael Curtiz making Captain Blood, which you mentioned was a rather elaborate and... Uh... That was quite a project. It involved uh, two full-scale ships, the French ship and the pirate ship, I remember they were designated as, which met in full battle. And these two ships were not out on... They were not ships out on the ocean, but they were sets built on a stage so again, we took the biggest stage that Warners had and built these two ship models on the stage, and they were on rollers so they could be moved in proximity to each other, but away from each other, but they were so huge that they couldn't be put on rockers. Mm. Well, naturally, ships at sea are going to rock and roll, and uh, we had to simulate that effect in some way, so we devised a method whereby the entire set, of course, had to be surrounded by backings full cycle ram around the entire stage so that we could shoot at all angles on these two ships. And, uh, of course, much of the picture was made on actual exterior, but all the scenes on the boats themselves, on the decks of the boats, the fights and all that sort of thing were done on the stage within the studio. So we've built these backings to simulate the rolling, the gimbal-like motion of the ship. The backs and backings were made in sections on which there were the horizon painted and cloud-like effects and water-like action and the water... The watery action was uh, obtained by uh, gluing little pieces of flittering foil, silver foil, onto the back, you know, a little breeze blowing that to make them flutter, which gave the effect of little waves, little wavelets. But these backings were all suspended on ropes over pulleys with counterweights on them, so that they could be raised and lowered and swung on angles. So that if you were shooting a portion of the boat, of course, you, if you shot two backings at once with a mast, maybe covering the point where the two backings came together, the two backings would have to work in complete synchronous. Mm -hmm. They'd have to be perfectly synchronized. But if you were confined to one backing, you'd get some fantastic effects of this boat almost going on beam's end. And then, of course, we used a gimbal tripod under the camera. Mm -hmm. So between the action of the backings and the gimbling of the, of the camera on the deck of the boat, we had some very exciting water movement in the thing. Another print of picture of yours that we have at Eastman House Hall is the Green Pastures, which was made in 1936. That was also made at Warner Brothers, and that again was, I, I guess I've, I've had a pretty colorful career, it seems to me, now that I look back over it, because Green Pastures again was a challenge. It had been a play, a successful play on Broadway, and uh, it was a, the Negro's idea of heaven, 
and it had a very tangible, real, realistic quality to it on the in the theater. And to successfully make this picture, we had to retain that realistic quality so as to retain the flavor of the Negro point of view. And again, that was a, just the opposite to the Midsummer Night's Dream Challenge, because there was a challenge to keep the thing as, as realistic as possible, but still have it a believable concept of the Negro's idea, of that type of Negro's idea, of what heaven would be like with its fish fries and its little mm -hmm. cherubs riding clouds and so on. <laughs> wonderful. So again, there was a picture that was made with a, a man who had not made a picture, Mark Conley, who had written the play and, was a, and uh, as I understood, had directed the stage production of it, came in to direct the picture, and poor Mark had some difficulty in trying to direct it according to the methods that the studio felt that they should be made, so eventually Mark was supplemented with uh, Bill Keeley came on and actually did the physical directing, but in effect was co-directing with Mark Conley. But that was, a, that was a, a fun picture to make because we had this entire Negro cast and I enjoyed working with them very much. Mm. There were some wonderful artists among them. And it was really a lot of fun and I think a very delightful picture. Another film of yours that we've seen recently at Eastman House is Dusty Rides Again from 1939. Yeah, with that wonderful Marlena Dietrich. I think Marlena Dietrich is one of the most outstanding personalities that the picture industry has ever known. I think she's a wonderful woman. And uh, we did this thing. Marlena had had a sort of a setback in the picture industry professionally. I mean, she was not doing too well, and uh, Universal, or Joe Pasternak, I think, was the producer of it, got this Destry story together and cast Marlena in the part of this dance hall girl. George Marshall directed it. And George is a very capable director, particularly in that type of picture, which is a, an action picture with a lot of bombacity to it and a lot of excitement and color. And Marlena was a delight to work with. Jimmy Stewart was also a lot of fun to work with. And I think we got an excellent picture out of it. An excellent picture out of it. In 1943, Hal, Watch on the Rhine means perhaps uh, something more to you than some of the rest of the films that you've made. Well, again, Watch on the Rhine was a wonderful experience for a cameraman, although I entered into that again with, with great reluctance because here again was a case of a cameraman who had started a picture and had not been given the proper authority to, to take the reins as he should have been given. And it involved a situation where a man who had produced a New York play successfully came out here to make a picture, and heavens knows that the theater is not the studio any more than television is the studio. They're entirely different arts and call for entirely different techniques. And unfortunately, there was a character involved in the making of this picture, the man who produced and directed the picture, had no knowledge or experience of motion pictures at all. He had done the play. The studio had assigned, had assigned a dialogue director with him who was a very aggressive little man who wanted to be a director and who wanted to run the show and tell people what to do, and the cameraman that had been assigned to it felt that he had to keep his mouth shut and do what he was told to do, and the only one that was telling anything was this aggressive little man who didn't know what he was talking about, obviously, because the picture reached a point after two or three weeks of, of being in production where the whole thing was about to be disbanded and thrown apart, and Shumlin was going back to New York, packing his trunks, Davis was quitting the show, and, and the whole thing was going to be wrapped up and thrown in the discard. And they asked me to come out and take the thing over. It seemed that I'm a perennial troubleshooter for Warner Brothers, or was up to this time, including <laughs> this time. And uh, I, again, with reluctance, took it over. I didn't want to replace another man, but after looking into the details and talking to people, I, to Koenig and, and Wallace and the others, I saw that they were at an impasse where the picture was either going to be wrapped up or somebody was going to take it over who could handle it, and they felt that I was the one that could handle it. So I did come in and take over the, over the, the photographic direction of it, and uh, I say it was a great experience for a cameraman because I think that most cameramen are more or less frustrated uh, producer, directors, or whatever you want to call them, they always feel that they can do maybe a little better than, the, than somebody else can. And with Shumlin, it was a rare opportunity for me to feel my oats and see what I could do. 
because uh, Shumlin would direct the scene exactly as it had been done on the stage, which of course was not photographic unless you photographed it with television techniques with multi-cameras, multi and then it would be an unsatisfactory job. And he'd rehearse the scene exactly as it had been done and then uh, on the stage, and then we would discuss it. And I'd give him some ideas that I would have in mind as to how it should be treated from a point of camera, only it had nothing to do with the performances, only insofar as the camera treatment was concerned. And then the script girl and I would sit down and write out a shooting script on that particular scene. And I'd lay out the, how the shots were to be done. We'd take the, the stand-ins and uh, rehearse with them and get the thing mechanically set while Shumlin was over in his office writing letters or working on another story or something. And when we were ready for him, he'd come back, watch what we had done, and make the changes that he thought were necessary to be made to concur with his thoughts as to the, as to the uh, direction of the thing. And we'd shoot it. And uh, I think it turned out, under the circumstances, pretty darn well. And it gave me an opportunity to, to demonstrate what a director of photography is able to do in the making of a motion picture if he's given the opportunity to do it and has, the, of course, the knowledge and the background to be able to do it. Yes. So it was a very exciting thing for me, and I think a pretty good picture again. Yes. Your remarks about Watch on the Rhine remind me that I've forgotten to cue you in on... Uh, when Love is Young in 1937. Oh, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned the frustrations of a cameraman, but I felt uh, at that time I was in the contract to Universal, and we had just finished a, a most unfortunate picture called The Top of the Town, which almost ruined Universal. It was an extravagantly bad picture. I had left it in the middle of the thing, and as a matter of fact, that was Joe Valentine's great opportunity. He came in to take the picture over, and that was what gave Joe his great start, was the finishing of the top of the town. He did a, did a yeoman's job on it. But at any rate, I had wanted to direct, because I felt that I had reached the, the heights of earnability as a cameraman. I was probably one of the highest salary cameramen in the business, and I felt I wanted to go on to bigger and greater, better things. And I also felt that aside from the money that I had something to give the industry, that I had a capacity for direction, and that I could come to great accomplishments for myself as well as bring something to the picture business. So I pleaded with Charlie Rogers to give me a chance to direct and he finally capitulated and allowed me to make a picture. I made a picture of Virginia Bruce and Walter Brennan and Kent Taylor and William Cannon, I think his name was, a few other people, uh, called When Love Is Young. It was made from a, the original magazine story. It was called Class Prophecy. It was written by Eleanor Griffin. And we revised it and rewrote it into a into a motion picture script call, and they finally called it a very bad title when Love is Young. But uh, it gave me a chance to direct, and it was a pretty good picture. It turned out pretty well, and uh, that was the year. The year that I made that was the year that Deanna Durbin was introduced to the industry. And if my figures are correct, I think that the universal dis distribution books will show that my little picture, which was a cheater and made for a nickel by comparison, uh, was the high grocer next to the Durbins of the universal output for that year. But unfortunately, the picture was made during a period when the industry was in a recession, one of its periodic recessions. And uh, there was a change in management taking place in the studio, and uh, things didn't work out for me as a director because of that. And I come to the happy conclusion within my own mind that why should I sacrifice the position of one of the top cameramen to become, in possibility, a mediocre director insofar as economic capacities were concerned and accomplishments were concerned. Unless I could become one of the truly great directors, I saw no point in carrying on with it. So I returned back to my first love, and I haven't regretted it, believe me. In our rapid progress here, Hal, I have the uncomfortable feeling that uh, we've uh, bypassed a number of films that you might like to comment about. Oh, I think we've had a pretty thorough coverage of many of the... I think most interesting moments in my career, but in looking over your list that you summarized here, I find that there are many pictures that are worth at least a mention. Uh, 
we won't detail them as we have some of these others because heavens there are still hundreds of them to be talked about but there's one outstanding thing that we've overlooked which followed the Broadway period was the King of Jazz with Paul Whiteman directed by John Murray Anderson that again was a huge spectacle a uh, musical thing done in Technicolor uh, Ray Ranahan worked with me as the Technicolor representative in photographing it and I think that even to this day some of the spectacular moments of that thing would be well worthy of reviewing it was a big picture, an expensive picture, and I think a very profitable picture for Universal. Then there was another uh, picture that I had forgotten entirely with Al Jolson that I had made a thing called Big Boy that was taken from one of his stage successes that was again directed by Alan Crossland. I had forgotten having made that. And so innumerable pictures at Universal, heavens, I mean, they go on by by the dozens at RKO Pathé, again with Bob Milton, who made uh, Outward Bound. I did a thing with Ann Harding and Leslie Howard and Allison Skipworth called Devotion. That was a really an excellent, an excellent picture for its time. Constance Bennett, Lady with a Past. Poland Negri's comeback picture, which was a brief comeback, a one-picture comeback, a thing called A Woman Commands directed by Paul Stein. It was also made for RKO Pathé. Uh, the first year with William K. Howard for Fox. My first picture with Janet Gaynor and Charlie Farrell. Or did we mention that? No. And then my final picture with Janet. A thing called Tess of the Storm Country. A remake of the old, I think it was the Pickford picture, Tess of the Storm Country. It was a remake of a remake. It was a remake <laughs> of a remake. It was with Janet and Charlie again. And, oh, a wonderful experience, a thing called The Warrior's Husband with Elisa Landy and Ernest Truex and Marjorie Rambo and David Manners. Uh, the thing of a, a sort of a uh, farcical thing of uh, reversal of sex. I mean, the men were the women and the women were the men. It was a delightful thing to do, a lot of fun. Uh, a thing with uh, Wilhelm Dieterle called Devils in Love with Loretta Young and Victor Jory at Fox. Oh, and here's one, here's one uh, that I did with Benita Hume and Adolf Manju, directed by Montebel, who I haven't heard of in God knows how many years, called The Worst Woman in Paris. It was in the middle of the making of this one, at Fox, that the uh, ca catastrophic 1933 strike was called, and I was called off of that picture because of that strike. Uh... Carolina with Janet Gaynor, directed by Henry King with Lionel Barrymore and Robert Young. There's even a Charlie Chan in here with Warner Oland <laughs> and with a delightful director, Frank Lloyd, a thing called Servant's Entrance, another Janet Gaynor thing. And here's one that I didn't enjoy making too well, although I think it was an exciting picture because of the challenge, a thing called Under Pressure. It was a story directed by Raoul Walsh at Fox that involved the sand hogs who dig the tunnels under the rivers and the story played 90% of it in this tunnel under the river and for obvious reasons we couldn't have a tunnel under the river as a set so we built a set that was about 150 feet long or a tubular thing with a slight curve in it that simulated the, uh, the underwater activities of these sand hogs in digging their tunnel and we succeeded in gaining tremendous proportions. I put a diminishing glass in front of the camera that made the 25-millimeter lens the equivalent of about a 10-millimeter lens. But in doing so, I had terrific spherical aberrations around the edge, barrel aberrations. But fortunately, in this round set, the aberrations did nothing but accent the roundness of the set. So we, we made this tunnel look, uh, oh, it looked, as though it could be miles long because of the terrifically wide angle that we used on, the, on these underground things with this diminishing glass. Incidentally, the same diminishing glass in an earlier picture that I made at Warner Brothers, the old San Francisco thing with Alan oh, yeah. Crossland, served a very good purpose because I set the diminishing glass, <coughs> mounted it in sponge rubber, and set that in front of the camera, the ordinary lens of the camera, and focusing the lens through that on the sets for the earthquake things by jiggling the sponge rubber on the diminishing glass. We got a wonderfully fantastic earthquake effect. Distortions coming into the building through the movement of this, of this diminishing lens. Uh, county chairman, another picture with my dear wife and Will Rogers.
at Fox with uh, John Blystone directing. Uh, the Walking Dead was with Boris Karloff, another one of those things like The Monster. Here's the thing with Edward G. Robinson, one of his very first starring vehicles, Bullets or Ballast, in which he played the, the tough little gangster that walks into the police station and turns them upside down. Uh, a thing with Joan Bennett for Walter Wanger, I Met My Love Again, that has repeated runs on television. As unsuccessful on television as it was in the theaters. <laughs> the thing that I did in New York called Back Door to Heaven with... Uh, uh, Wally Ford, Nyland McMahon, Stuart Irvin, Patricia Ellis, directed by Bill Howard, one of the greatest talents I think this industry ever had. Fine director, and had interesting experiences making that, because New York was a new field of operation for me, and I enjoyed it very much. Here's Destry Rides again that we've already talked about. Uh, the end of the first picture, the little Gloria Jean came into, directed by Dick Wallace. Oh, yes. And Gloria enjoyed a uh, very highly successful career for a while. Introduced Nan Gray to pictures. Bob Cummings also was in that, but not as the character, the photographer that he plays on television now. Uh, a thing with Basil Rathbone, Sigrid Gury, called Rio, a fantastic thing by another German director, John Brom. A follow-up on Destry, When the Daltons Rode, also directed by George Marshall, which was another one of those spectacular things, but didn't meet the success that Destry did. And here's one that I enjoyed doing with Tay Garnett, a thing called Cheers for Miss Bishop, which is released on, released on United Artists with Martha Scott. And we took Martha Scott through an age period on that, along with Bill Gargan and Edmund Gren and Sterling Holloway. In fact, the entire cast from school kids on to real antiquity up into their late 80s. And it was quite a masterpiece from a point of, uh, of, uh, of makeup and from, from uh, a challenge in that respect to photograph it successfully. I saw that recently on television and it still looked pretty good. And then one very black moment in my life directed by a great director, George Marshall, a thing called Pot of Gold with James Stewart and Paulette Goddard. Uh, James Roosevelt was the producer and it was a very unhappy picture for many reasons. Uh, oh, International Lady, Twin Beds, Watch on the Rhine, which you've already mentioned, and the remake of Phantom on the Opera. I don't think, uh, Phantom of the Opera, I don't think we've discussed that at no. all. No. Phantom of the Opera got me my second, uh, my second Oscar. First one was for, for Midsummer's Night's Dream for black and white. This one was for color. And I got the award for that and can, uh, can, uh, together with uh, Duke Green, who worked with me from Technicolor. That was an exciting thing to do, and uh, although I do believe that a picture that was as great as the original Phantom of the Opera, as crude as it might be in retrospect, it's an awful challenge to try to top that kind of a thing, even with our most mm -hmm. modern anti uh, equipment, uh, our most modern uh, accoutrements to work with. And I don't think we quite reached the splendor or the, or the excitement of the original Phantom of the Opera, although it was a pretty good picture. picture called Ladies Courageous with Loretta Young and Geraldine Fitzgerald and uh, all a big cast of, of women, including Diana Barrymore and June Vincent. It was made during the early days of the war period at the Long Beach Airport. It was a story about the women who flew, uh, who flew the planes, delivered planes to the different fronts mm -hmm. during the war, the WAFs. And it was a it was an exciting thing to do because we were working entirely within a restricted area during a war period and working around planes that had not yet been announced to the uh, to the public or to the world at large. Oh my goodness, so many! <laughs> Salome, where she danced, the first picture that Yvonne Di Carlo worked in that was also made for Walter Wanger at Universal and was a pretty good color job as I remember it. wasn't bad, bad picture but nice color. Uh, here comes a thing called A Night in Paradise, also made at Universal and also for Walter Wanger with Merle Oberon and Turan Bay and Tommy Gomez. That was a spectacular thing to photograph. That was the period of our lavish sets when sets reached the capacity of the stages and extended beyond them. And we had to use not only high skill but a lot of imagination and, and meeting the challenge of even transferring them onto film. 
uh, Song of Scheherazade, another one of the lavish things, the color things, which is the, uh, oh, the composer, John Pierre Amati, Bondi Carlo, Rimsky-Karsakov, yes. The Lost Moment, which is uh, the Aspirin Papers, was the original book, uh, was a again a great challenge because it was a mood thing it was entirely a mood picture and and uh, it was fun to do although I didn't enjoy the physical making of it too much because of certain circumstances and personalities but nevertheless it it was a it was a milestone and here's two pictures that I think were were well worth doing another part of the forest uh, was done at Universal with Freddie March and Dan Duryea and Anne Blythe, Florence Eldridge. And I don't find a note, I can't think of the name, the title of the following picture, which had to do with a doctor thing that they, uh, it's not noted here, and I don't remember, but it was the same period, made by the same, the same group, by the same director. And this director subsequently is no longer in Hollywood because of his political leanings. No loss to Hollywood. I'm perfectly frank in making a statement like that because I believe it. But another part of the forest was a magnificent job as the picture. Here's a thing uh, called the second woman. Oh, Johnny uh, Johnny Holiday. There's a picture that we made entirely on a on an actual location back in Indianapolis, in Indiana. Mm -hmm picture of a reform school character, a little boy that goes to reform school, and every foot of that film was shot on the actual location and the actual interiors. And on this picture, I believe for the first time, and I'll be challenged for this, but I can say this without reservation because I know it's the first time this medium was used, uh, having to shoot actual interiors and having a bright exterior to contend with, of course they had to attempt to use filters on windows in the past, but this is the first time that plexiglass was used oh, yes. as a filter on the windows, and I succeeded in finding, finally succeeded, after searching the plexiglass factory samples, uh, found a sample of a, uh, a color that was the absolute equivalent of a 5N5 filter. Had about a two and a half filter factor, and it uh, not only uh, reduced exposure outside, but gave a certain amount of correction outside. And by putting sheets of that over the windows, we were able to get a perfect balance of exposure between the exteriors and interiors. And here, this that brings me to a to a, well. Here's here's another picture that I did uh, for uh, United Artists, a thing called The Second Woman, directed by Jimmy Kern. It was a low budget picture. And I think for the first time, not the first time the film was used, but the first time it was used in this manner and used successfully, we had a lot of nights exteriors to shoot in the picture. And uh, it uh, being a low-budget picture, uh, it was impossible to, to use illumination to the point that we could cover the extensive areas that were required for these night exteriors. But uh, the suggestion came that we shoot day for night, and day for night is usually unsatisfactory, particularly if you hit bad weather conditions where there's any haze in the sky or anything of that nature, or any long shots of any proportion to shoot. So we did, we finally hit a compromise, and I think it's the first time this was done, and done as successfully as we succeed in doing it. We shot on location, I used infrared film entirely for the night scenes, uh, that is entirely to this respect. The, uh, the long shots with the characters in, of course, were shot on infrared, but we kept the characters far enough away from the camera that the overcorrections on the faces, etc., mm -hmm. didn't bother us. And then, having rehearsed the scenes and knowing how they would be played, we shot background plates also on infrared on the various angles that would be needed for the, for the picture. And then, back in the studio, of course, the composites with the actors playing the dialogue scenes against the infrared plates was shot on plus X film. So the composite was a proper rendition so far as the people were concerned. And had very good results with that. And I've used that same, uh, that same uh, method recently on a picture that I've just finished for United Artists for Clarence Green and Russell Rouse, directed by Don Siegel, called The Gunrunner with Audie Murphy. Mm -hmm. And that picture uh, plays about three-quarters of it plays on a sports fishing boat between Key West and Havana, and a great portion of the story plays at night. Uh, fortunately, the night stuff, uh, they're uh, illicitly running guns for the revolution, so they're running without lights. I didn't have the, uh, the uh, 
practical lights to contend mm -hmm. with or artificial lights of any kind. So again, we shot the long shots on infrared, and Volga had the boat painted in the neutral colors, neutral, uh, what we call technicolor grays, so that the uh, filter corrections wouldn't affect the physical characteristics of the boat. Yes. And we shot all the long shots with the boat on infrared film, and then uh, shot backgrounds again on infrared, and again did the composites in the studio on process with the, with the Plus X and I think got some very exciting night results. I'll be very anxious to see the picture, and I think you'll enjoy it when you do see it. Can you mention the angle about the, uh, the drive-ins? Yes. Oh, yes, that's an important point. Uh, before we started the picture, we went down to survey the locations, the producer and the director, and the production manager and myself down at Newport Beach, uh, Balboa, where most of the picture was shot. We did the Key West stuff. and did the, did the Havana stuff there, too. Found very successful locations for that. And then operated as that as a, a base of operation for the boat out of sea. So on the way down, I had a discussion with the producer, uh, realizing that the, uh, the estimate is that about 40% of our domestic business comes from the drive-in theaters. And the drive-in theaters have turned down the runnings of possibly half of the pictures that are offered to them because of the fact that their effects are so dark and so dim that they can't properly re reproduce them for their audience, and they get audience complaints, so therefore they won't run them. That is the average picture. They won't run if it's dark. So I questioned Mr. Green about this as to whether he had any concern about the, dr the drive-in situation, and he, this is apparently a new angle to him so far as making it possible to photograph for drive-ins. And uh, I pointed out the fact that the story was written with a great deal of night stuff, night exterior, and if we, if we shot the ordinary day-for-night thing, it would be an unsatisfactory thing, and you couldn't record at any rate on a fishing boat with the engines running. Mm -hmm. It would have to be done process, so I suggested using the same procedure that I used on Second Woman. Uh, photographing the plates on uh, the long shots of the boat, etc., on, on uh, infrared, and then doing the composites on plus X with the infrared plates. Mm -hmm. So he agreed to that idea, and it worked out very well. I think it's a, kind of an exciting effect, and I'm sure it's a picture that if it's a good enough picture as a picture to merit the runs, that it will not be refused because of the dark photography by the drive-in theaters. That you can be sure of. <laughs> so uh, I feel it was a very successful experience. Uh, the four poster picture I did for uh, uh, oh, what's his name over at Columbia Kramer, Stanley Kramer there was another thing that was a kind of a field day for cameraman because the whole thing played in, a, in one set in one room if you recall the play yes. and to get 90 minutes of, of story in one room with a variety of angle and a variety of shots was quite a quite a task. I was lucky enough to get a, at least a nomination for an Academy Award for that, which was very pleasing. Member of the Wedding, another one, a uh, picture by Fred, directed by Freddie Zinnemann with Julie Harris and Ethel Waters. There's another play that was transposed to the screen, and these plays all seem to be written into a single or a small set, and Mm -hmm. And transferring to film, you have to extend yourself beyond that and try to do something that justifies you getting outside of that set, and that's usually the challenge of the cameraman, to make it interesting enough to make it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. So we had fun doing that. It was not a successful picture, incidentally, but I think it was artistically successful. This next one must have been. And the next one, yes, that, that was fun. That was a devil of a job to do, but I think it turned out very well. It's my only experience with Marlon Brando. And I enjoyed working with Marlon. I think he's a very worthwhile young fellow. Picture called The Wild One, which was also made for Stanley Kramer, directed by Laszlo Benedict. And that was a very exciting thing to do. And again, I used infrared in that thing, as I recall now. There was a long glove scene. Oh, yes. A long glove scene where Marlon is riding this little girl on his handlebars down this long avenue of trees at night thing, a love scene, and they had planned again to shoot that at night. Well, how the devil are you going to shoot a long shot on a motorcycle at night, people dialing down miles of road? You just simply can't light for it. And uh, so, against the advice and the wishes of many of the people at the studio who were completely unfamiliar with infrared, 
I finally insisted and Stanley backed me up on it, so I went out and shot the plates on infrared film and then made the composites again with Plus X with Marlon and the girl and the motorcycle against this infrared background and it was a fantastically beautiful effect. It had a fairy-like quality that was lovely. The trees that we went through, we did something that you ordinarily don't do with infrared. Infrared is so highly sensitive to the yellows, the red end of the spectrum, that if, if you have any uh, high chlorophyll content in your, in your backgrounds, they bleach right out to white. Hmm. Well, the spot that we were photographing was a row of pepper trees which have a very light yellowish green leaf foliage and uh, ordinarily would just become white blobs on the screen but we picked a time of day we shot them just we shot the thing just at sunrise and uh, we had gone out before to map out the method of shooting and the sun rose on a direct 90 degree cross light across this road and with the, the long shadows across the road and the sun just striking one side, a backlight almost, side of the pepper trees, the rest of the trees held down and it had a beautiful fairy-like quality of this bright moonlight on one edge of the trees and these long shadows across the road with the rest of the trees falling down. And it made, a, it made an exceptionally beautiful shot. I don't know, I think we've about covered everything, uh, George, that I can think of. Uh, the, of course, the advent of Tri-X film was again a, a new tool for us. I had the pleasure of shooting not only a lot of uh, television film, which is peculiarly adaptable to Tri-X film, where the grain, the, the little increase in grain is not too important, but I did a, a feature, a large screen aspect ratio of 185 to 1 feature film on Tri-X film for United Artists a couple of years ago, a thing called The Boss. Oh, yeah. and had very good luck with it because of the fact that we kept the uh, all of the planes on the film out of that middle gray range which was disastrous mm -hmm. to try X. We either had blacks or whites on the screen and the middle ranges were were in such areas that they didn't point out the grain and actually I, I challenge anybody to look at that film and, and uh, say that it was shot on on a grainy based film. Actually the film is not a grainy based film it's not as fine-grained, of course, as the Plus X or mm -hmm. the new Plus XB, which is an exceptional film. But uh, I think with a, as a tool that if properly used, again, it's like the infrared film. If they're properly used, I think they're magnificent tools for the cameraman. But, of course, improperly used, like everything else, they're bad. Is there anything else you can think of that I should tell about? Not offhand. <laughs> I don't know think about <laughs> I think we pretty well covered the field. There's a lot of pictures we haven't talked about. There has to be because God knows in the 45 years that I've been in this business I've possibly photographed about 500 pictures. <laughs> I can well believe it. <laughs> We're very grateful, very, very grateful for the opportunity to have conducted this interview with you, Hal. Well, George, it has been my pleasure, believe me, and I, I don't know as I've enjoyed two or three hours more than I have this today. This interview has taken place in Hal Moore's home on April 4, 1958.